0: Um, I think there's a way in which interacting with nature can, can situate us <laughs> very powerfully, um, and make us understand our lives in within the you know the various contexts, the overlapping mm-hmm. contexts that um, that we're situated in. And um, and I think whether or not people believe in God, there is something powerful about experiencing nature that at least raises the question of. You know, what is there out there that's larger than us? You know, what are the forces at work that transcend human experience?
1: I'm Sadia Tariq, and you're listening to Dhani, the podcast. I believe everybody has a story, and Dhani has been all about these stories coming from opinions, personal experiences life lessons, and so much more. And somewhere along the lines, we find ourselves being part of these stories or they being part of us in nooks and crannies, in crumbs, in echoes and reflections. Our guest today is Dilrupa Ahmed, recipient of a number of prizes and awards. Her work has been published in leading newspapers and magazines in the U.S., And you only have to read the poetry yourself to understand the nuanced, sensitive, spoken word that she has. In this podcast, we talk about how nature and poetry are weaved together. Ruba takes us through the lyrics and the rhythms and the music of the written word. We also talk about the mystery of poetry and of how the reader is often expected to turn up 50% to understand any text. Last but not the least, Ruba recites a poem that she had written on the sad demise of her father. This podcast warrants some attention, some deep, hot attention, I would say. So sit back and enjoy. And if you like it, don't forget to share and give us a suggestion or a rating on any platform that you're listening this on. Thank you. Ruba, honored to have you on Dhani. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, you for me. having me. Ruba, you um, have done a lot of work. Uh, you're a writer. You're a You're an author, you're an editor, Um, poems, um, literature, writing workshops. There's plenty um, that you have done. How and why both perhaps? Uh, Poetry lends, or perhaps is the baseline, or perhaps the language of being
0: human? It's a great question, Sadia, and thanks so much for inviting me to be part of this conversation. Um, I, th- I think this question is wonderful and it really jogged my memory uh, back to an essay I read many years ago by Donald Hall. And it's called Goatfoot, Milk Tongue, Twin Bird, which is you know an unusual title. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it refers to is this sort of primal need for the sensory delights of poetry. Um, and and Donald Halls, he writes in the essay about his belief that poetry has roots that in some kind of expression of the divine. Um, mm-hmm. And so these three phrases that he uses, goat foot, milk tongue and twin bird all refer to what he um, discusses as these pre-verbal sources of poetry. So the goat foot, for example, is related to the mouth and the, you know, sort of the infant need to put things in one's mouth and experience one's um, surroundings through the mouth. And so that's really related to all the sensory delights of poetry. Um, The second one, milk tongue, has to do with uh, our muscles. And it refers directly to that you know the, the ideas of the baby suckling and drinking breast milk and has to do with our impulse for rhythm and music and so you know we would mm. see that played out in poetry through through rhyme or through um various you know metrical patterns or other kinds of rhythmical patterns um and then the last part of the phrase is twin bird <clears throat> excuse me which he describes as a kind of match-unmatch, um, and the discovery descri- describes the discovery of babies realizing their hands are attached to their bodies and you know symmetrical, and that they can actually make their hands do things. Um, so that one's a little bit more complicated, but it has to do with movement, the idea of you know mirror image as much as cause and effect. You know, sort of like our own agency—we can do things. Our actions have consequences. Mm. Um, and so that I think you know that essay really speaks to this idea of um, the question you're asking: Is is there something intrinsic about being human? You know, where does poetry come from? Mm. And he frames it as something very much related to the body and very much pre-verbal. Mm. Um, the other thing that came to mind was something Donald Hall also said, which was that poetry begins in elegy. You know, there's this idea of Um, loss and wanting time to stand still. Um, So, you know, some writers might argue that everything we write is really an effort to kind of pause time and memorialize or capture and cherish, honor, sort of understand the moment um, that we're in.
1: As you said, it's almost like it is a sensory experience. And before you even sort of express that experience, it's already building in you in in a very lyrical musical way
0: yeah and, absolutely
1: and as you said in sort of again tying us back to uh, the divine to the process of creation to the to the the, the nature that's around us
0: yeah very much so i um spend some time thinking about this. You know, there there is this idea in Donald Hall's conceptualization of poetry as poetry arising from the body. But I think, too, that there is, um, you know, inspiration and impulse to be found in nature around us as well. Um, and so, you know, if we're thinking about, um, for example, the, the cycle of the seasons, you know, that re- reflects that change and loss and rebirth that, um, is, you know, mirrored in our lives as well. I think that being in nature, experiencing nature can, can reawaken our awareness of that cycle of life, um, and help us see it in new ways. Um, I think too, there's something about the sensory experience of, of being in nature, you know, whether it's, um, using our five senses, you know, and, and, and really taking in what it means to be near the ocean or in, a, in the woods or near a Creek, whatever it might be. Um, but also the sense of awe that nature can inspire mm. in us, you know, just by its mm. sheer force and size. Um, I think there's a way in which interacting with nature can, constitute situate us <laughs> very powerfully, um, and make us understand our lives and Within the you know the various contexts, the overlapping mm-hmm. contexts that um, that we're situated in, and um, and I think whether or not people believe in God, there is something powerful about experiencing nature that at least raises the question of, you know, what is there out there that's larger than us? You know, what are the forces at work that transcend human experience? Um, so I think again, there's just that sense of scale that. Awe, they're really awe-inspiring.
1: Mm. And yeah, as you're just saying, that it it has that innate power to sort of nudge us to, I wouldn't say force, because poetry is sort of too gentle and soft for that, mm-hmm. but it does um, nudge us to contemplate and to wonder and to be in this sense of awe, right? Whether it is sort of romantic poetry or it's political poetry, it, it's always held a very, very strong um, force, again, I would say, to make people think, to force them to think and to force them to sort of take
0: an action. Yeah, absolutely. I think think that um, that experience of thinking about who we are, what our context is, and, you know, what what it is that we're doing as we move through time and space, that can be very powerful. And um, uh, I think, you know, I would just note too that I'm just as, I've been talking about nature and experience of interacting with the land, um, but I'm just as interested in cityscapes as well. And, you know, I'm thinking about Mm -hmm. what is that human relationship between nature and, and land and the environment? Um, so yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. There's something very powerful about it and, um, and it can really compel us to, to think, uh, if we take the time, you know, compel us to think about, uh, our lives in different ways.
1: Also, whilst you were talking, I was thinking that it has this huge, uh, mysterious element to it whereby it's sort of it you know the the poem is is how you sort of uh, understand it what your perception is and it could you could understand it differently the same poem you could understand it differently now and perhaps 10 years later it will come to you in a
0: different way yeah absolutely absolutely i was um i was thinking about how you know a friend of mine who had suffered tremendous losses had said um, you know nature nature has a lot of healing power it's a it's a real healer. And at the time I was very skeptical, you know, I was sort of fresh in my own grief about my father's loss. And I I felt very jaded about the idea of any kind of healing. And I thought, you know, I don't, I don't know if I buy that. Um, And it took some time before I was able to kind of understand her point and, and experience it, you know, and I think um, part of that was being near the ocean again and, and just really taking in the, sheer force and size of it and realizing that um, that whether i liked it or not whether i believed in it or not the ocean being near the ocean was compelling me to think about aspects of my life in, in different ways and so you know i think that we we can have that experience with poetry as well where we understand things in a certain way the first time we read a poem um but then through layers of experience and with the passage of time, we can come back to a poem and understand it it in entirely new ways.
1: But coming from a writer's point of view, might sound very sort of immature, but (laughs) why the mysterious element? Why would you want to uh, sort of keep certain elements away from the visible eye is it again using as a poet would you you do you use that to sort of encourage the reader to delve and look deeper
0: yeah, I think this is a great... Keeping that mysterious element. This is a great question, Sadia. I love this question. And I think, you know, part of the reason that some people get frustrated with poetry is because they feel like it's just, it's a magic trick. You know, there's someone trying to withhold something from them. And that can be very frustrating. It's like, why is why does this have to be so obscure? I can't, you know, my brain hurts and I don't want to spend the time trying to figure it out. Um, and so one of the things I like to think about is... Um, Many years back, I heard Michael andage read on Stanford's campus, and someone in the audience asked him, you know, you write in multiple genres. When you sit down to write, how do you know what you're writing? How do you know if it's a poem or a piece of prose, fiction or nonfiction? And the way he described it was that when he's writing fiction or nonfiction, he feels like the stage... There's a stage before him that's somewhat brightly lit. He can see the figures moving around. He can kind of discern the landscape. Um, There's, you know, there's a light cast on it in a way that uh, sheds more meaning. But when he's writing a poem, he felt like he was moving around a dimly lit stage. And I think that analogy of the dimly lit stage is really helpful, has been so helpful to me over the years, because there are parts of our experience that we can't directly express via straightforward narrative. Um, And so, you know, in my classes, we talk a lot about the interplay of meaning and mystery in our work. You know, there's bound to be meaning uh, for example sensory details that ground the reader in a you know in a physical context and then begin to hint at the emotional context um but there's bound to be mystery in there and part of that might be sort of for ourselves figuring out why why am i writing this you know why am i compelled to write this in, in this manner um and there are certainly aspects of of lived experience that can't always be captured in a straightforward narrative which is why we have metaphor you know, metaphor is a way of saying, "Well, X is like Y," so that I could share something about my experience with you, and you will bring your experiences mm-hmm. to the table as well. But there's a sort of way we can meet, you know, partway between your experience and my experience by comparing these two unlike things. Um, so I think, you know, I think sometimes people get frustrated with with poetry and feel like it's hiding something from me or it's it's too obscure. Um, but I think Uh, part of what I strive for when I'm writing and also when I talk with my students is to really think about the material at hand. You know, what does this poem call for? Not every poem is going to call for a straightforward narrative, first-person narration that, you know, unravels a story in chronological order. For some experiences, that will be authentic to the material. Um, But in other cases, we might need something deeply fragmented that is, you know, creating this this disequilibrium in the reader, Um, not for fun and jokes, you know, not to just um, use language in a gimmicky way, but in a way that conveys something that is emotionally true for the speaker of the poem. Um, So I think for me as a writer, a big part of learning to revise has been listening, which mean by by that, I mean, listening to my own material and being able to ask, what does this material need or want from me? Um, Because it's very easy to get kind of stuck in a rut and feel like, okay, every poem's going to have a first person narration. Um, But it took me some time to realize, you know, that's not always going to be the case. There's not always going to be a poem that has, um, you know, a sense of closure, some, some Poems are really going to resist that because that's what is authentically true to the material. Maybe there's a poem that, you know, ends with a sense of invitation or something that's ongoing and rippling off the page or an outright resistance to closure at all because that's true to the material.
1: And which is very true to human nature as well and being human as well. Sometimes you are inviting, or you sort of open to receive, and
0: sometimes you aren't, and you are quite sort of consistent with resistance. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think in in grappling with um, material about my father's illness and his death, you know, it really, I had to really think hard about um, what what language, what role language, could have in the process of grieving, and how I would go about transmuting that into poetry. And I think one of the um, you know, one of the discoveries I've made about grief is that it, there is no closure. It only shifts over time, you know, it evolves and changes. And so I had to think hard about, you know, what kind of writing is, what kind of writing can I um, do that conveys that, you know, that doesn't necessarily have a strong sense of, of finality to it. Um, so I think there's... Um, there's a lot of listening involved in her vision that that I've come to learn. And I think that uh, interplay between mystery and meaning is, is part of it so that we can understand about our own material. Mm. Okay. Is this a poem that's really trying to reveal a story in a straightforward way because that's what suits the material? Or is this a poem that's, you know, sort of struggling into existence in other ways? And then how do I meet its needs? How do I serve it and bring it to fruition?
1: Mm. you know hailing um uh, from the the subcontinent um, i I've, I've somehow noticed that um the poems coming out of our in our national language perhaps even if it's political sort of uh, alluding to some sort of a political movement or it's uh, with to do with relationships or a broken heart is it true that Poetry sort of stems out of pain?
0: I think that's a great question. Um, I think many times that's true. Many times poetry is inspired, so to speak, by some form of loss, whether that's, as you mentioned, you know, the loss of romantic love or the loss of, um, you know, the idea of our nation as we expect it. Um, but I think part of the power of poetry is that it, it is flexible enough and malleable enough through language to really capture all aspects of human experience so that, you know, we, we can read and write poems that, um, you know, capture joy, real moments of joy or capture moments of, um, of questioning and, and skepticism. or uh, moments of, you know, a deep sense of awe for the divine. Um, and while th- those may stem from loss, we don't know necessarily if it doesn't enter the poem. There are certainly poems out there that can, that do that work. Um, but I think many times for the people that I know and for myself, or the writers I know and for myself, poems have often come out of a deep sense of loss. Um, and in fact, one of the poetic forms that I've been trying to learn more about is, is the guzzle. Um, And I think part of what's fascinating about Mm -hmm. the guzzle is that it is sort of a kaleidoscopic take on life. You know, these series of couplets all fitting within a very strict uh, rhyme and refrain scheme uh, with some kind of metrical parameter or syllabic parameter. But in terms of mood and content, it can really hold everything and anything. Um, So, you know, if traditionally there are the themes have to do with um, love and longing, loss, um, everything from the divine, you know, the beloved in the form of the divine or uh, an earthly beloved or even beloved as as revolution. Um, you know, there's room for all of that within the guzzle. And so I'm fascinated that there's this one form that can mm. sort of encompass all of the various moods and um, all the various material that we might think of or experience. Um all within one form. You know that there was um, there's this uh, poet,
1: uh, and in 1971, when the um, when the two states of Pakistan broke up into Pakistan and in Bangladesh, and he wrote this poem. And for the longest possible time, when I heard when I heard that poem translated into a sort of a song, for the longest possible time, I thought it was about uh, two people mm. breaking apart. And it was much later when I realized that it was actually about two nations, and it was just absolutely fascinating to discover that it just translates to the reader in the mm-hmm. language that you understand.
0: Yeah, right? absolutely. I think, and
1: I was like, really, because it did hold true for those. Because you know, there's the earth uh, lives. It has, it has. Um, You know, it breathes. Right. So when when nations sort of fall apart, there is brokenness, which is very similar to two people Mm. falling apart. Right. And I was like shocked because again, because I perceived it from my
0: limited understanding. Yeah, I think I it's fascinating. Research, you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the one of the mantras that's kind of thrown around during writing workshop is to keep in mind that we should let the reader bring their 50%, uh, which is to say that, you know, there's we don't have to spell everything out for our reader, but also to, you know, sort of honor their experience. And so, you know, part of what I'm hearing you say is that the experiences we bring to a poem um, can frame, you know, how, how we interpret them. And so I think it's fascinating that, over time you've had this shifting understanding of the poem based on your you know in part on your own experiences and i think that's part of the power of poetry you know Mm -hmm. i think many of us would like to write poems that people want to come back to uh time and time again and that, Mm -hmm. you know poems that are layered enough that people find they can continue to mine it for meaning over time um and not sort of feel like you know, it's, it's just uh, so simplistic that it can be read once and understood and digested, <laughs> but instead has the complexity and, you know, this sort of, um, uh, you know, a power over time for, for reflecting or capturing uh, many different things that are part of lived experience. Which would almost be true
1: for all our um, holy scriptures as well. As you said, they're complex, they're layered. And they would speak to you differently, as in when you yeah, visit them. Absolutely. I mean,
0: I I did not grow up in um, in a religious household. My my heritage is my parents are Muslim, um, but I've been surprised just how much the patterns of of biblical biblical language have affected my work. You know, there's there's so much poetry in mm-hmm. divine texts. There's so much power to the language that's used there. And so, you know, whether it's the use of anaphora or just, you know, the artful use of language to compel people towards understanding. um, I think that's that's a really powerful source of inspiration for writers.
1: Yeah. And as you I mean, it sort of brings us full circle, because when we started the conversation, it was about a certain sort of a message by the divine and as you're saying it just sort of ties in now and again the 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 mystery and the layers and the complexities and the nuances they're there for a purpose as you said whereby you uh, want the reader
0: to offer his yeah, 50% yeah, absolutely It's almost as though, you know, the poem can offer a lens, you know, it's a lens through which I can offer my understanding of the world or my experience, but the reader is also coming with, you know, their lens and um, bringing their understanding and their experiences to the table as well. So, um, you know, there's this wonderful exchange that can happen between perfect strangers through the poem, which I think is, is one of the, you know, mysterious and wonderful aspects of writing poetry.
1: Indeed, Ruba. Coming towards the end of our podcast, would it be too cheeky of me if I request you to share oh, some I of really... your work with us? Take us. Um, yeah, absolutely. The I would be honored.
0: Um, I am uh, going to read. Thank you. The poem, a poem for my second book. Uh, the poem has the same title as the book. It's called "Bring Now the Angels," um, and this was a poem that. Uh, I revised heavily, and in fact, there's a version of the poem called "Matter of Fact" that appeared, you know, in a publication years ago. Um, but when I went back to the poem, when I was, you know, sort of assembling this as a manuscript, um, part of what I was struggling with was how to sort of push past individual experience. You know, I'd written many poems that were specifically, um, many poems in this book that are specifically about my father's three-year battle with multiple myeloma. And um, many poems about grief and, you know, sort of like starting to feel like I needed a new way to approach the material. And so the first version of the poem focused heavily on my father's uh, illness and all of the experiences surrounding that. Um, But when I revised the poem, I was thinking hard about how to push past personal experience and how to situate it in, you know, all the different overlapping contexts uh, of our lives. So there's a family experience, um, of course, but when it comes to illness, you know, chronic illness, terminal illness, there was also this experience of moving through the healthcare system, navigating insurance, dealing with governmental regulations, um, grappling with religious views on life death and care for the ill um all of these things that were you know more more, they went beyond my own experience um and so i tried to think hard about how how to sort of bring that in and what emerged uh is something that i think is more polyvocal and something that expresses a multitude of experiences not just what my family my father and i experienced Um, So I'll read that one aloud. Mm. Bring now the angels. Sure. Bring now the angels to test your pulse as you sleep. Bring the healer, the howler, the listening ear. Bring an apothecary to mix the tincture. We need the salve, the tablet, the capsule of the hour. Bring sword eaters and those who will swallow fire fetch the guardian to flatten the wheelchair, to hoist it toward heaven. The public shuttle awaits the ceaseless trips to the clinic. To the bedside manner, summon witness, this medic's disdain toward patients, the physician's dismissal of pain, and call the druggist again to drug us senseless. Bring a nomad to index our debts, Tuck each invoice into broken walls of regret call the cleric the clerk the messengers divine summon someone collect the prayers buried or burnt tied to stones sunk in seas dunked under water until all dissolves bring now the scribe let it be written there is no shepherd No Sherpa, no moonlight guide for these the darkest journeys of our lives. Who will lift the shuttle above the outposts of the living? Who will watch it rise and rise? Who will clear a path among all the wreckage? Who will weave a nest for all the birds of passage? Who will bridge the gap between savage and salvage? Who will sing? Over wilting stalks, rough husks, silk still gleaming like hair in a dream. Speechless. So thank you for inviting me to read that.
1: Oh my god, it's 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 like being fully you. beautiful. <laughs> Oh, Ruba, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you. One last thing, if the listeners want to find more about you and your work, uh, what uh, do they do? Well, the book I just read Where do they from find you?
0: Um, just came out from the University of Pittsburgh Press in April of this year. Um, but I also have a website, it's com that has more information about me, my writing, and my teaching as well brilliant brilliant
1: yeah so I'm going to put all that in the show notes as well and thank you thank you so
0: much for um thank you sharing so much of you with us I appreciate your invitation and your time